Man, as you grab a seat, you can turn to First Timothy chapter five. Uh, we're cruising right along in the book of First Timothy. Last week, uh, Justin walked us through the last uh, five verses of chapter four. Uh, did a great job. Let me just put a spotlight on Justin for a minute, make him blush for a second. Um, thank you for for filling in, and uh, thank you all for uh, praying for us and our family as we've been traveling uh, to be with family. And in, 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 uh, anyway, uh, it's good to be back, and we're excited to be in. First uh, Timothy chapter five this morning. Uh, last week, um, as as Justin rounded out chapter four, the emphasis and the focus was on uh, Paul's encouraging Timothy to set an example for the rest of the believers in the way that he lived every aspect of his life. Um, and then as a result of that, also while he's doing that, to not neglect or to use the gifts that God had given him uh, in service of the church. And and one of the the broad um, applications for all of us out of that is that that God has gifted each one of us uh, in special ways for life in this body. Uh, And and, and I'm excited to just hear how some of those conversations have been taking place in the last week of just like, what does that mean? What does that mean for us as individuals? What does that mean for us as a church? Um, And as we walk into chapter five, we're really circling back to a topic that was uh, kind of introduced in chapter three. Um, in, in chapter 3, in the, the qualifications for pastors and for deacons, uh, you remember one of the qualifications for both of those is that they manage their household well. And in chapter 5, we get this expanded view of, of what does the household look like and what does it look like uh, for us as believers to relate well to one another in the household of God, but also practically, what does it look like to take care of our own households well? Um, we talked about this in, in light of the, the pastoral and deacon qualifications that while those are qualifications specifically for those men set apart for those offices within the church, that those qualifications or those, those qualities ought to be ever increasing and present in the life of every believer. Uh, so every follower of Jesus should be growing in each of those qualifications in, in the sense of uh, we ought to be living in purity. We ought to be uh, having a good reputation in the community. We ought to be managing our households well. We ought to be relating well to another, one another. We ought to be not or ought not to be quick to anger, but we ought to be people who are sober-minded and, and, and marked by godliness in all that we do. And so chapter 5, uh, just a, a quick, I guess, disclaimer a little bit is, if we just dropped into chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, without any of the other context of First Timothy— it might would look like um, the the first Timothy chapter five is all possible and it's all doable in your own strength. Like that, this would be some qualifications that uh, you could, you could you could just figure out how to like we could we could do a, a five point sermon on five ways to better manage your household, and you go oh that's all we got to do is, is 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 buff up these things. But really, uh, that's not what's happening. Uh, what is happening in First Timothy chapter five, and really all of our life in Christ, is that that God is doing a transforming work in His people through faith in Jesus. So that every other relationship is just drastically and radically transformed because of Jesus. Um, and so, as we walk through chapters five and, and even into six, what we see is that even uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks in chapter six, that the workplace is transformed by our faith in Christ. How we relate to coworkers, how we relate to bosses and employees, or or we, wherever you find yourself in that situation, is transformed by knowing Jesus. In the same way, 
would we not believe that the family and the household is drastically transformed by knowing and walking with Jesus? That drastically transforms how we relate to one another. It it, it drastically changes how we relate to one another in this place as a local church, as as members of it. And so uh, all of this, uh, what we're talking about in chapter 5, is flowing out of lives that are being transformed because we've been redeemed by Jesus. Right? And so, uh, uh, just to, to give us an idea of, of why that's important, is if we went into this morning and just simply saying that you just need to, to run your family better, it would be putting a yoke on you that you are unable to do on your own. Uh, if we were just to say, you just need to be a better husband or a better wife, or you need to be a better parent, apart from the transforming and constant work of the grace of Jesus in your life, it would be an impossible task for you. I, I, without raising your hand, how many of you just feel like sometimes just life in family in general, not even church family, but life in family is just, that's overwhelming. And apart from the sustaining work of Jesus, how does this work? And that could be, and that doesn't matter whether you're in a family full of followers of Jesus or you're the only one in there. You go, how in the world does this work in a way that honors the Lord apart from his sustaining work and his sustaining grace? And so when we come into chapter 5, that, that underpins the whole thing. Like, if we miss this foundational faith in Christ, it doesn't matter what you take away out of chapter 5. Like, it doesn't work apart from this foundation of life in Christ. So, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, Younger women and sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than sixty years of age, having been the wife of one husband. And having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And you might think, uh, as we walk into chapter 5, you know, what in, like, why does this have any, any application to me? Uh, or, or what does this look like as we walk through this? What does this look like 2,000 years later? Um, 
One of the biggest takeaways, and we mentioned this on the front side of reading, um, one of the biggest takeaways that we'll have from today, though, is that Jesus transforms relationships. Uh, How we relate to one another and to our families is firmly in view in chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. In verses 1 and 2, Paul starts with Paul giving, he's given instructions to Timothy, but these instructions could very well apply to each and every one of us. so he, he encourages Timothy, who he had already said in chapter 4, uh, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers, right? Now, sometimes if you tell a young man, don't let anyone look down on you, what's his response? Chest goes out a little bit, like, okay, I won't let anybody look down on me. I can be abrasive. I can stand my ground. Right? A uh, young, in his 30s, pastor who, who is to, to, to a church leader who is to set an example for the believers in all that he does. But these practical, how do these relationships look for Timothy relating to the church? But then also, what ought it look like for us to relate to one another? So he says, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now sometimes you might hear us talk about uh, the, the, the church is a church family. And sometimes you go, I, I, don't, I, I have enough family on my own, I don't need more. Uh, I have enough family drama of mine, and I don't need more of yours. Um, but what, the reason why we say that, in a sense, is, is in part, what we see in verses 1 and 2 is that the natural family informs how relationships within this church body ought to function as well. You notice that across the board, the picture of this looks like it's framed by, those, these relationships are marked by respect and love for one another and encouragement more often than they are by conflict. Like, so, so even if in our, in our natural families, in the families that we grew up in, even if we have not seen the right examples of what uh, father-son relationships or mother-daughter relationships or sibling relationships are like, those natural relationships give us an idea. What does it look like if those were walking in the fullness of knowing Jesus? What would those look like? How ought we to relate to one another? Maybe not how have we been related to, because we would all probably go and say, well, there's, there's in some ways, if we have been part of any family, um, this would be like, you probably don't even need to make a note of this, but you probably know this by now. If you are part of a family, your family is made up of sinful people who do not always do what is right. And sometimes, depending on your family, they may have done more wrong than they have done right. And so there might be a little bit of a catch there when, when Paul's like, hey, Timothy, this is how you ought to relate to people in church. And, okay, okay, we'll all go. We're, we're family. But what he's saying is in the nature of how we relate to one another, what does it look like for a younger leader to relate to people that are older, younger, or adjacent to them? What does it look like for you in relationships in the church? What does it look like for you to relate to people older, younger, or side to side with you? And, and Paul paints the picture of the family to give us an idea of what that looks like. Hey, that makes sense. If you've, if you've ever been in a situation where you tried to rebuke your biological father or your stepfather or whoever else, how well did that go? Did it get received really well? Like, let me set you straight, old man. All right, gone, done. Doesn't help. Doesn't do anything. He says, in the way that you relate to them, 
you are looking to them with an eye of respect and encouragement. That doesn't mean that there's not, he, he's not excluding the idea that correction might come, but how would correction take place? I would say in, in all of those relationships, correction takes place through, an, like, ideally in an environment of encouragement and encouraging them towards further godliness, walking with the Lord in faithfulness. Now, how do we do that apart from God's help? Have you ever been at odds with a family member before? So you know the challenge of conflict. What is our goal in the conflict? Usually in, 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 a, in, a, in a fleshly sense or for out of the flesh, in the old man sense, what is our goal in conflict? I must win at all costs. Or I will win at all costs, right? And, and, and maybe you have sibling, like we call it sibling rivalry for a reason. A wrestling of a one-upmanship. And what Paul is saying, I think, in, this, in these two verses is that ought in, within the church, within our relationships with one another, it ought not to be that way. It's not that there's never a time for correction and there's never a time for encouraging toward further godliness, but how does it happen? Does it happen with a self-sacrificing love for the other person, or does it happen through a self-asserting over them? And so as, as Paul is encouraging this younger pastor Timothy to, to, to not rebuke older people, or the older men or even the older women, but to relate to them with an eye of these people are to you in this body. They are to you. They are family to be respected and to be loved. Now, if we step back and we say, well, what is the purpose, um, in, a, in a sense, what is the purpose of natural family? When I say natural family, I mean like our nuclear family. Like, What's the purpose of that? And what does it do for us as we grow up? What ought it to do? And again, realizing that there are many times where what it ought to do is not what it does. But what it ought to do is it ought to be a place that provides protection and provision and nurturing care. Right? That, that enables people that are brought into it to grow into maturity so that they are fully healthy, capable, functioning people. Right? So if we take some of that same idea, within the church, how ought we to relate to people and what is our purpose in seeing people coming into our fellowship together? Like, is it not to create an environment where they can grow into the fullness of the stature of who Jesus is? And doing that in a way that is providing and protecting them with an eye towards their good and not just to my own. So the family ought to be the most selfless place that we can identify with outside of the church. Uh, hopefully. And again, does that always happen? No. But family functions best when every member is giving of itself for the whole. Right? Like, like fatherhood works best when dads are laying down their life and protecting and providing for their children. For their good, right? With an eye towards the good of their children. Sacrificing of themselves. Motherhood works best when mothers are laying down their own rights, their own privileges, and providing for and nurturing and bringing up children to maturity. Now, again, does that always happen? No, it doesn't always happen. But it gives us a picture of it. If this is ought to be how it works in the natural family, what ought it to look like in the church as we relate to one another? 
do I want for you to grow to fullness of Jesus so much so that I will give of myself to see that happen? Will I lay down my own rights and privileges so that I can see you grow into the fullness of the stature of who Jesus is? Am I willing to let go of my own preferences, my own things, in order that you might grow? And in all of this, it's framed with the idea of in all purity. So even as we relate to one another, it is done with holiness. And again, apart from Jesus enabling this in us, how can we sacrifice ourselves and lay ourselves down for somebody else? We can't do it. It takes a constant dying to self and, and realizing our life in Christ in order to see this happen. So one of the questions that we might just we might just would ask ourselves, and I would encourage you to ask yourself this week, is how do I love other people, especially within the church? How do I love people in the church? How do I love my fellow members at LBC? What is my attitude in my heart towards the people that I sit next to in worship? What is my attitude in my heart towards the people that I serve alongside of in whatever varied ministry it might be? What is my heart and my attitude towards those that I encounter within the body of Christ? Is it marked by a self-giving, self-sacrificing love, or is it kind of like, you're in your space, I'm in my space. As long as we stay in our spaces, we're all happy. Do I have their good and their benefit in mind? Do I have their spiritual growth in mind? Do I have enabling them and providing a space for them to grow to maturity in mind? Is that important to me? Or am I focused on what can I get from this place? Kind of like you're sitting at a family dinner and, and if there were no rules, no holds barred and everybody wants that last drumstick, how do we do it? Non-arms off, right? What does it look like in our life? And then as Paul continues to walk in chapter 5, he introduces a slice of the population that might otherwise be overlooked. Um, in Acts chapter 6, we were first introduced to, to the, the issue of taking care of widows in the church as a significant issue in the life of the church. Right In Acts chapter 6, Jesus has ascended into heaven already. In Acts chapter 1, the church is beginning to grow rapidly and just crazily in Acts chapters 2 through 5. And as the church grows and multiplies... It runs into an issue where there are uh, there's the, the Jewish speaking uh, believers and there's the Greek speaking believers, and they both have independent like they have groups of widows who are receiving daily the distribution of bread. Like so, the church is feeding the widows in the church, and the Greek speaking uh, believers come and they, they raise an issue, saying our widows are being overlooked in this process. So, so one group of widows is being overlooked, and the other group is receiving all of the bread. And so the church established the office of deacons to help take care of this need, right? Choose from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, who will be able to handle this. You might would think, when you read through the book of Acts, that Acts 6 is like, they, boom, they took care of widows, and it was never a problem again. Except for then you come to 1 Timothy, and it's like, hey, there's a whole section on widows, and you go like, this is kind of an interesting thing that pops up here. And there's a little bit within us that, that we have to wrestle with a little bit of cultural context because things are different now. Do, would you agree that things are different in t- uh, 2023 in America versus in the year 60 in Rome? Things are a little bit different. 
Okay, so there's some cultural stuff that we have to just wrestle with first and then go, okay, now how does this continue to look for us today? Uh, so culturally, you go back historically to, to, to New Testament and Bible times, a widow is one who would be disenfranchised. So she would be without land, without property. She would be incredibly vulnerable unless her family is taking care of her. Okay, and so that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul lays out for the church, okay, who is the church to take care of in, in this important way so that they are not left destitute, they are not left vulnerable, they are not left alone. And there's some, some qualifications that are kind of laid out. So there are two qualities really emerge um, in a broad sense of who the church ought to take care of in terms of who are truly widows. You've probably heard that phrase, or widows indeed. Who are the widows indeed, or who are truly widows within the church to receive extra special care? Okay, So this is not to say the church only has to care for this small subset of people, and then the rest, whew, we don't have to have any concern for them. Well, the church has concern for every single part of it. Right, It looks out for this, but it also has a special eye towards those parts that are more vulnerable and more at risk. And so out of this will emerge two specific groups or two qualifications within what makes a widow a widow indeed. So the first one would be that she is without other family. So she has, she has no other family. So if you notice, uh, so he says, honor widows who are truly widows in verse 3. He says, verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them be the first to show godliness to her. Making some return to their parents, or this is pleasing in the sight of God. And then it, 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 it paints a contrasting picture in verse 5, but she who is truly a widow is left all alone. Right, so you have this picture. It, like when you say, if you had two competing—it sounds weird to say competing needs—but if you had two competing needs that came before the church, and so we have two individuals who are in need of extra special care for their for the provision of what they need, and you were to lay them out on paper, and say, well, well, widow number one has five children, seven grandchildren, and they are all working, and they all have jobs, and they all are able to help meet her need. And he said, but widow two has no family, or she has one family member who is slightly able to work, but she has the same need, but not the same ability to see it met within the family. What should the church do? So the church would encourage family one to say, hey, come alongside of and take care of your family member, which is exactly what Paul is laying out for and encouraging Timothy to do. And, and, and even issuing the command that if she has a, a children or grandchildren, let them be the ones to show godliness to them. Conversely, he says, but if anyone in verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith. So if, if there's a legitimate need within an individual's family, and they turn a blind eye to it and say, it's not my problem, Paul says, that's a really big red flag of the condition of your heart if you just go, legitimate need, not doing it. Now, in 2023, I think this is an important conversation we have. Is every need rising to the level of emergency? And what needs ought we to be concerned? And what needs are we compelled to meet? 
because again, I don't want to lay on you a guilt trip of like, oh, wow, you have family. You should, you should like be completely supporting them even though they have the means to do so. Right? This is, we're coming at this from a place of they do not have the means to take care of themselves. Right? What we need is, is she is left alone without resources, without family. So there's the, without the church's involvement, in other words, in First Timothy chapter 5, she is all alone. I don't want to poop all over benevolence ministries everywhere. But most of the needs that we get requested with are not of this nature. At times, I go, and, and part of the vetting process that a church rightly does is, what is the need, and, and, and tell me about it. Where is it coming from? Tell me about the history. Like, like just give me the context. Right? And, and that's essentially what Paul is telling Timothy. Like, look into the family situation. What does that look like? What, what resources are there already? So there's, there's the, the with or without family and with, it, with or without other resources available. But then the second one, especially for within the church, the second quality that makes somebody a widow indeed, who, is, who the church rightly ought to jump right in and help, is one who is marked by godliness within their life, church, and family. Right? So he says, um, uh, she's one who, who sets her hope on the Lord, continues in supplications and, and prayers night and day in verse 5. You keep going down into verses 9 uh, through 10. It gives more qualifications for the one who ought to be enrolled. Part of it also there is, is age-based, and we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, but purity in marriage, that's kind of like the reverse of the qualifications for pastors and deacons being the, the husband of one wife. She is to be the wife of one husband. Having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. In other words, she is a known person within the community of faith. Now, I, I, again, I, I paint what, what normally happens. Most of the requests... Most of the requests that we get as a church are not from within the community of who we know. Most of the time, there are people we don't know. We have no idea. But here's what, here's, here's just my little soapbox on the moment. And, 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 but it calls, I don't mean to say soapbox, but it calls for incredible wisdom. Because we are, we are stewards, not just of the finances of the church, but we are stewards of God's grace, right? And so, like, we have an eye for restoration when we come alongside and help. But oftentimes, I mean, you can see this just pretty regularly. If someone has a need, one of the first places that people say is go to the church, which is fine. However, sometimes when we vet, we go, well, you have a family. You have resources. What's the ask? And so at times, the church is viewed as the easy, the easy place to get whatever I need. Now, what Paul is, is, is urging in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is not that the church becomes callous and heartless and does not help, but that the church cares rightfully for those who need to be cared for. And so there's this call and this urge to, to vet the needs. It's okay to ask the questions. Tell me about this. 
Again, this is a practical matter. But the practical matter is that in asking questions, we, have, we find out also where and how to share the gospel. And again, the idea here is the church is caring in an extra special way for a population that otherwise would be without hope, would be destitute, would be vulnerable. So then the question is, how do we care for, if that's the case, how do we care for, the, the, for the, those that are um, potentially on the outskirts, right? So getting more into the practical part of, okay, for our church, what do we do? What, what steps do we take? Or what do, steps do I take as an individual? And the first one seems kind of backwards because we're talking about helping other people first. Uh, but it's backwards because we begin by caring for our own households. We begin by stewarding our own households well so that we aren't leaving family members unattended, alone, and destitute. We are setting up our own family. We are caring for our family first. We are taking primary responsibility for our households. So when you think about that, that qualifications for pastors and deacons of managing their own households well, one of the pictures that kind of emerges as we walk into 1 Timothy chapter 5 is a pastor would not be a very good pastor if his parents are destitute and he has the ability to relieve their suffering. But he turns a blind eye to them. You go, well, how are you going to manage the household well if you're leaving your own family stranded? Right? So it begins by managing our own household well, starting there, Showing godliness, and it starts back up there in, in verse 4. Letting them first learn to show godliness to their own household. Returning some, he says, making some return to their parents. The idea of making some return to their parents is an idea of, it's like financial help. And again, 2023 is a little bit different than mid-60s AD. Mid-60s, nobody has a 401k. There's no social security. There are no savings plans. There are no college savings plans. Right? It is you work until you're not able to work, and then hopefully, maybe you could save some things, but maybe it's the, the idea was family takes care of itself. America is weird. I don't know if you knew this. America is weird in the way that we care for family. Because in, in America, family is nuclear, parents, children. One of the, I was in front of this with this when we lived in Africa. Our, um, the, one of the gals that worked in our home, and her husband worked for us at times too, uh, his dad had a stroke. And so my first thought was like, oh, he had a stroke and he's doing re- rehab. I said, oh, like, so like, what kind of facility is in there? He's in our house. I was like, so, yeah, we're taking care of him. It's like, he can't use any of his side, but we're feeding him. We're taking care of him. We're changing him. We're do- like, and the family just like, the family, like, it's so different. Like if a family member of yours has a stroke that they lose part of this, their, their use of their side in America, what do we do? Hey, we have a great facility for this. This has a nursing staff to take care of all your needs. They feed you. They do all of these things. Now, so the care, hear me on this, the care that we might give in, in, in our culture may look a little bit different than the care that might have happened in mid-60s AD Rome, but the same principle is that in place. Do not neglect caring for them. So much so that, I mean, Paul says, if anybody doesn't provide for his relatives, and if they turn a callous heart towards this, especially for the members of his own household, he, like Paul says, he's denied the faith. That's not, that's not a small, like, just little, huh, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate you're not taking care of your, your family. 
that if you refuse to do this, you, like, it, it's revealing in you that there is something wrong because God has designed us to do this. And I want to also just really quickly then, uh, I think another thing culturally that's important for us to touch on is, is that idea of truly in need. We talked about that just a minute ago, but Second Thessalonians chapter 3 Verses 10 through 15 uh, is Second uh, Thessalonians 3, chapter 10 through 15 is uh, a passage that, that people we love to talk about because uh, especially as, as blue-collar Americans, we love to say, like, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat, right? Um, but the idea in it comes out of what, what makes somebody truly in need. Uh, again, in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul is laying out instructions for a church, a specific church with specific issues. But he says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. That's, again, harsh statement. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. One of the guards, in a sense, for the church, as Paul lays it out, is, is if, if you have the ability... And the resources at your disposal, or you have the ability to work, you ought to do so. So, like one of the ways that we, we, we begin with is we care for our own household, but we also uh, we we work to the glory of the Lord. And and we as we walk into uh, a little bit more of this in First Timothy, we see that that one of the risks that happens is if people just throw themselves on the church and say, "I have a need," and it's never vetted and it's never encouraged to like if there are resources and and the ability at their disposal to do it. Paul says like, they, they, they become idle and they, they fall into sin because they, they could be doing something, but instead they're doing nothing and just living life on support. As opposed to the one who is truly a widow who sets her hope on the Lord and is marked by seeking him with what she has. So the second thing, so we begin by caring for our own household. The second thing, though, and we just touched on it right there, is we set our hope on the Lord. Now, a question is, is that just a command or a call just for widows? Oh, widows should set their hope on the Lord, and everybody else should do their own thing. Well, no. But one of the marks of one who is to receive support is that they anchored, their hope is anchored in the Lord. Their hope is in him and not in anything else. Which is marked again by that contrast in verse 6, but the one who is self-indulgent or the one who is only focused on personal pleasure or pleasing their own needs is again, uh, in the same way that somebody is not caring for their families, denied the faith, someone who is only focused on their own pleasure and their own needs and fulfilling their own desires is dead even as they live. In other words, there's a, there's a, there's a spiritual problem. If the whole focus is just what can I get for myself? So then the next question is, if we care for our own, uh, our, our own household first, and then we, we, we then look at those that are outside of our household that are genuinely in need, we care for them, then the, the next question is then who, as we look at that community, who ought the church to care for first? In other words, how do we triage 
the situation. And he says for widows, if we're talking specifically about widows, he says in verse 9, uh, if they are marked by godliness and they have no family, notice that the first qualification there then is age. And in our, again, culturally for us, 60 years old is not that old. 60 years old in ancient Rome is getting up there. Right? So we would say, the, the, uh, I, I want to be careful on this for our, our 60 and 60 plus uh, audience. But I say that the, the call first is to care for the elderly. I, if you're 60, I don't, I, you're not elderly. But we care for those that are most on the older end of the spectrum first. <laughs> that have been marked. I'm going I'm to dig a hole no matter how I do that. Uh, they're marked by faithfulness. So they're marked by faithfulness in their marriage, and they're known by the church through their involvement. Uh, again, in, in the way that they parented, if they parented, or in the way that they come alongside other people with children, in their hospitality, in their service, and, the, and, and we could just sum it up by saying their life of faithful response to who Jesus is. And then just another really, really quick caveat here. In my experience, those are not the first people who ask for help. It takes the church knowing its people. It takes its members knowing one another. Because the people who are most deserving of help are usually the last ones to ask for it. So, you can just put a little start next to that and like, keep your eyes open for people around you. What is going on in their lives? Those who have their hope set in the Lord may not be looking really quickly to say, what can you do for me? Because they have their anchor set in the Lord. But that doesn't mean that the church is like, oh, well, they're hoping on the Lord, so that's great. Well, maybe, as they hope on the Lord, the church is the answer to this initial situation. We would also say, so it's a special care to the weaker members. And then, again, how do you know this outside of relationship? How do you know who is in need of specific and special care in different situations if you do not know them? Conversely, you may be somebody that, that needs help in some ways and you haven't asked because you go, well, I'm just trusting that the Lord will provide it. Please know that you can ask for help without that being seen as, oh, wow, I asked for help. Allow the church to minister to you. Allow the body to be the body to you. Um, and I know that's a scary thing. But then the next, then again, who ought the church to be, uh, who ought the church not to be primarily responsible for? Not ignoring spiritual development, just talking about benevolence. Who ought the church not to be primarily responsible for meeting some of those needs? So the first one, again, we're, we're hammering this one more time. Those with practical resources. So those that have family that can do it. In verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them so that the church isn't burdened. But it's not just so that the church isn't burdened. It's so that the church not be burdened so that it can meet the needs of those that really need it. The second one would be, going back to St. Thessalonians, the church ought not to be primarily responsible for those who have the ability to work. If they have the ability to go and, 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 and participate in solving the problem, let them participate in solving the problem. And then number three that Paul lays out that, again, will lead 
to really quick, we'll just chase a rabbit on it. Um, number three in, in First Timothy chapter five is those like for specifically in case of widows is those that that are below that age told that Paul says I encourage them to remarry. So then, really quick, because some of you are like, wait, if I'm not married, is Paul saying that I should be married? And you just had like a bunch of questions just pop in your head. So. First of all, Jesus and Paul both spoke on the issue of singleness. There are some who are gifted in singleness. Some, like, so God, God blesses some towards marriage, some towards singleness. And both of those, the aim of those in both cases is not marriage or singleness. The aim of that is faithfulness to the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that he wishes that everybody was like him and, and able to just stay singularly devoted to the Lord. He said, but that's not the case for everybody. So, so God has provided a good thing in marriage. But Jesus said, it's like some people are eunuchs for, uh, by the hands of men, and some are made eunuchs by the kingdom of God. And so like some are just like they choose singleness in their devotion to the Lord. So um, it, it, remarriage is not necessarily the gold standard of widowhood. Then the next question, uh, the practical question, because he said, I urge, uh, in verse 14, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give adversary they give the adversary no occasion for slander. Um, so, the, again, the question is, is marriage for everyone? Is child-rearing for everyone? And, again, no, because that's not the means of, of gaining godliness. Godliness comes through faith in Jesus. But what Paul is saying is that uh, if, if, if you were a younger widow and, and, and you had a desire to remarry, it would be better to remarry and uh, somebody who is equally focused on the Lord and, and maintaining that focus rather than wanting to remarry and remarrying outside of the faith and then drifting away from it. Uh, but so some practical matters also, like that would be a way in, in first century that a younger widow would be provided for. Because again, outside of marriage, no job, no property, no whatever. Then final question, really quickly, verse 15 says, For some have already strayed after Satan. Is it only women who are straying after Satan? No. Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he said, There's already guys like Alexander and Hymenaeus who are departing from the faith and causing others to do the same. So the overarching theme of this is in, in the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul is encouraging the church as a whole to pursue godliness, to cling to faith-filled dependence in Jesus. It says, and, and you see this, that there are some who are departing from this. And these are some of the factors that are contributing to it. But it's not just a, a gendered issue of you need to cling to Jesus in faith. Church, you need to cling to faith in Jesus with all that you have. Like That's the call. But then it's in the meantime, as we cling to dependence in him, are we caring well for one another? Are we looking around and going, these are where needs are, and we're, we're quick to meet them. Quick to know what is going on in the lives of the people around us. Are we relating to each other well? Are we loving each other well? Are we willing to give of ourselves to see somebody else provided for if they have the need? Because of what Jesus has done for us. Not in order that God would find us acceptable, but because of what Jesus has done for us already. Are our relationships marked by that transformation? in the church, and in our families.